people trod on one another. Enormous multitudes came to hear Jesus. And as you read through the scriptures prior to today's gospel lesson, it seems to me that the major theme of what goes before today's gospel lesson could be paraphrased as, wake up and smell the coffee. Jesus observes that the crowd can tell what kind of weather is coming based on the direction of the wind, so could they not tell the direction of their lives how they were heading? Or again, Jesus says, if you're going to go to court, don't you want to settle out of court before you see the judge? Essentially, the teachings before today's gospel lesson could be paraphrased as saying, we don't have all the time in the world. Now, you know that repentance is a major theme in Luke. And as we've discussed often before, repentance simply means turning around or changing your mind. We might have that stereotype picture of the old man in a long white robe with a long white beard carrying a sign in front of a store and on the sign there's one word that says repent. I'm not sure that everyone has ever been persuaded to turn around or change their mind based on a billboard. And then sometimes people think that repentance is sitting in sackcloth and ashes as we heard about in the Hebrew Bible. That was the reality then but it's a metaphor now. Really, that has to do with remorse, the sackcloth and the ashes. And remorse may help bring along the process of repentance, but the real issue is, can you change your mind, and then can you change your conduct? Another recurrent theme in the Gospel of Luke and in Jesus' teaching is bearing fruit. Jesus mentions it in the Sermon on the Plain, as well as other places. John the Baptist talked about it graphically. If you remember his sermons from the first couple Sundays in Lent, any tree that, is, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's how John the Baptist preached. And then there's that famous parable of the sower, where Jesus notes that it's people with good hearts who hear the word of God, hold on to it, and produce a fruitful harvest. But as Jesus listens and teaches with this multitude, it's a time of trouble. And some who are listening to Jesus have a specific issue to talk to him about. This is material that is unique to Luke's gospel. We don't see it elsewhere. And Luke presages Rabbi Kushner in terms of talking about when bad things happen to people who seem to be just fine, doing good things like making their sacrifices or maybe building a tower, or maybe coming to a spring for water and being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And as though perhaps suspecting the motivation or understanding from which the crowd has asked these questions, Jesus really doesn't give an answer, did you notice? But asks another question, like so many wise teachers do. He asks the question twice. Do you think these people were worse than anyone else? Now, in the bulletins today, I copied off some pictures. I copied them at home. I didn't use the color copier here. I'm not trying to break our budget. I copied off a picture that should be in your bulletin, and it's a picture of the foundation of the Tower of Siloam. I have a slide of that foundation of the Tower of Siloam, what's left there, because in 1986, I spent eight weeks in Israel-Palestine with the Biblical Archaeology Review people. It's one of the best things I ever did. And they took us by the foundation of that tower 
and I snapped a slide of it. And I always thought to myself, I want to have that slide enlarged and put into my office where I did counseling. There's a good reason for that. And if you can't guess what it is, you'll guess by the end of the sermon. So that's a picture of the Tower of Siloam's foundation. It was about a 19-foot diameter inside and about a 22-foot diameter outside. It's still there. The Tower of Siloam, it was by the spring of Siloam that made the pool of Siloam. That means scent. Remember that story in the Gospel of John, the vision? Guy who receives his sight again? Anyway, let's take a few moments for a psychological digression that I think really helps us understand today's gospel lesson. And the psychological idea is called locus of control. You may have heard about it, but I know you have experienced it. There's a lot of research been done on it. Basically, locus of control says, do people believe that by and large they are typically responsible for what happens to them? That's an internal locus. Or do they believe that by and large life is the result of fate, powerful others, and forces beyond your control? Whether or not we're conscious of it, our attitude towards this locus of control can have a huge impact on our agency. What we used to call back home our get up and go, our functioning, what we are able to get done. One of my dearest friends in the first half of my life had what I would consider to be an external locus of control most of the time. Whether faced with a family situation, a work situation, a government situation, his response was often a heavy sigh, and then he'd say, well, there's nothing I can do. And then he proceeded to do nothing. Ultimately, it did not serve him well. But it's more nuanced than that. Many of us have an internal locus of control when good things happen to us. Have you ever heard people say something like this? I've worked hard for everything I've got. Nobody handed me anything. Or I recall some of the couples that I worked with in Sun City in their retirement. We would have our first interview and they would say something like, we scrimped and we saved. We didn't spend foolishly. We worked hard for everything we got. And then they remembered that it was a faith-based agency and somebody would say, oh, oh yeah, yeah, and uh, God was really good to us and we've been blessed. By the way, that was close, almost forgot that piece. So when I am successful and the outcome is desirable, I have an internal locus of control. I worked hard. I deserve it. Have you heard that? If something really rotten happens to me, however, my locus of control might shift to external. The teachers had it in for me. My big brother bullied me my whole life. The folks were never there when I needed them. Nobody gave me the advice that I should have had. Do you get the idea? The external locus? And what's really more interesting in this psychological digression is how we attribute locus of control to other people. When someone has done really well from a business or professional standpoint, have you ever heard something like, well, you know, the old man gave him that first farm, handed it to him on the platter. Or, he's no fool, he married into big money. He was at the right place at the right time, he just got lucky. In other words, the good fortune of others is often attributed to external events. 
Now, when bad things happen to other people, we often attribute an internal locus to them. If they'd have had any sense, they would have made better decisions. They made one lousy choice after another. If he'd gotten up off of his lazy boy, maybe he could have mounted to something. Does that kind of talk sound familiar? Even if there is a natural disaster, this locus of control stuff can come in. Years ago in Grand Island, Nebraska, just about an hour from where I live, Grand Island was hit in one night with seven different tornadoes. It was a meteorological phenomenon. Two of them were spinning in the wrong direction for the Northern Hemisphere. Meteorologists came from all over the world to figure out what happened. And guess what I heard from people outside of Grand Island when they talked about that night of tornadoes? I heard things like, well, you know what goes on in Grand Island. And of course, I didn't know what went on in Grand Island, so I was eager to find out. And people would say, don't you know that Holiday Inn there on Locust Street? You know what goes on in Grand Island, that Holiday Inn? I still didn't know. But the implication was the whole city of Grand Island had it coming. It was punishment. God was going to get him. On one occasion, when I heard such rhetoric, I made the observation that if God wanted to punish Grand Island, it hadn't happened very efficiently because the tornadoes missed the Holiday Inn and hit the big Lutheran church. <laughs> that didn't stop people from attributing they had it coming. Oh, and in a similar line of thought, don't you remember how people talked about New Orleans sometimes after Katrina? I remember that. How we love to make judgments and what a difference it makes depending on who's getting judged. And of course, in our more lucid moments, we also know that both an internal and an external locus of control are part of life. To paraphrase Niebuhr's serenity prayer, we really need the wisdom to know the difference. As I heard a Lutheran ethicist say just on Friday, we need to think about how we think about these things. And locus of control is part of that, being aware of how it is that we think. One of my mindfulness professors called it, um, what did he call that? Cultivating a witnessing awareness. We need to do that. So, based on the conversation in the crowd, we probably can conjecture that Jesus is being asked, those Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, those 18 folks on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, did they have it coming? See, rather than deal with the scary reality that random bad stuff could happen to any of us at any time, some people would sooner often conclude that when bad things happen to someone else, they have it coming. And twice Jesus says, no, I tell you. The no comes first in today's translation and in the original. Conversely, I remember one of my religion and philosophy professors at Fuller. He was a young guy, just absolutely brilliant, and it seemed to me like he had most of Western philosophy crammed into the space between his two ears. He was so bright and so well-read. And one day in class, he smiled at us and he said, you know, 
Back when I first accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, I really thought then nothing bad was ever going to happen to me again. Yeah. How did he get that idea? And obviously he was smiling, and he has since, long since, gotten over it. Back to the crowd in today's gospel. People persist in assuming that when bad things happen, it's God's punishment. As I told you before, we, working at Mosaic in our outreach to Tanzania, we deal with this line of thought and this rotten theology quite often. There, the birth of a child who has a disability continues oftentimes to be considered as God's punishment with all the awful outcomes and abandonment issues and everything else that goes along with that lousy, lousy theology. As I have often said in the past to my counseling clientele, not everything that is punishing is punishment. Random bad stuff can happen. And sometimes that's just in the nature of things. Let me talk about that. People think that the earthquake is God's punishment, especially if it happens somewhere else, kind of like the hurricane in New Orleans. But in fact, here's how it's the nature of things. Our planet has a molten core and continental plates, tectonics, right? Load across that molten core and they move. And that makes most earthquakes. And if we didn't have a molten core, Earth would have no magnetic field. And if we don't have a magnetic field, the sun, which now nurtures life, would destroy life. So those earthquakes are in the nature of things. Just as the same thunderstorm that can bring rain to the parched prairie in Nebraska can also bring a tornado. Jesus turns this profound discussion away from somebody else's sin toward repentance for all. So, in four sentences, Jesus negates four classic assumptions. Suffering is proportional to sin. No! Tragedy is a sure sign of God's judgment. No! Bad things happen only to bad people. No! And the big one, we have the right to make these judgments. No, no, no! Jeremy Williams, who teaches at our Luther Seminary in Minnesota, says, rather than focus on past events and what cannot be controlled, Jesus encourages the crowd to change what they can, their minds. Changing the mind in this way leads to a change of conduct. And Jesus invites the audience to adjust their current course and return to God. Dr. Williams says, Jesus is not suggesting that repentance will prevent them from a physical or catastrophic death. Rather, Jesus is suggesting that changing their minds will prepare them for whatever the experience, including producing fruit for the rest of their life. And so that brings us to the parable of the puzzling fig tree. Puzzling parable. What's the fig tree doing in a vineyard anyway, unless this is zoned for mixed use? Why has the owner been coming there for three years, each year, looking for fruit, when he ought to know that a fig tree isn't mature until it's been there for four or five years? Who is this vine dresser or gardener who respectfully counters the owner by answering him, let it alone, sir. If it bears fruit next year, 
well and good. If not, you can cut it down. What's the gardener doing giving directions to the landowner? Remember, these parables are magnificent ways of slowing us down, not giving us pat answers, which we would be apt to reject anyway. Thereby, it helps us to discern meaning together, which is always the best place to find meaning, sisters and brothers, is to discern it together. Peter Gomes says, parables are told to disturb rather than to console because the people to whom Jesus is telling it are the people who think they already have the answers. One commentator called this parable the gospel of the second chance. So, each Sunday during Lent, we practice the gospel of the second chance, confessing mutually, pastor to people, people to pastor, that there's just been times when we plain messed up and we want to do better. And then we hear the absolution that says to us, well and good. Well and good. And so may grace and peace be with us. May this Lenten journey be to the benefit of our spirits as we practice forgiveness toward one another and repentance for our own behavior, turning from what makes for death toward what makes for life, turning from judgment to compassion, turning from barrenness to a life that grows much fruit.